I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending July 26th. This week, we're mixing it up a bit. In this episode, we're going to focus on a single topic. It's how the world's biggest companies are doing business in ways no company has before, and what that might mean for everybody, not just the technology industry. There are fewer than a dozen of these giants. On Wall Street, you might still hear them referred to as the FANGs. FANG being an acronym for Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google. These are companies that have grown so enormous, we've invented new words for them. Hyperscale and hypervertical. Other hyperscalers include Alibaba, Amazon, Baidu, Microsoft. These companies have exerted an unprecedented amount of influence in our society and culture. This is the big picture stuff we all know. know, Facebook has become a vital venue for socializing, as well as an unexpectedly powerful political forum. Amazon helped change the way we shop. Google has upended multiple industries, including advertising and publishing. These hyperscale technology companies have changed the way we live. What most people have yet to comprehend is they're not done. They are not done. What they are doing now is remaking the technology industry itself. And since most of us, even those of us who work in the business, haven't quite understood the extent to which this is happening, almost nobody has really thought about the implications, about the big picture. Wally Rines, the almost legendary chairman emeritus of Metric Graphics, has thought about the implications, and they are more consequential than anything hyperscalers have been up to to date. But to make sense of what Rines is going to tell us, we need to run through what the hyperscalers are doing now. Every hyperscaler's most valuable asset is information. They make money from getting it, processing it, analyzing it, and acting on it. That's why every hyperscaler ranks among the biggest data center operators in the world. So what's important to a hyperscaler? Brad Booth manages the technology at Microsoft's data centers in Microsoft's Azure unit. Here's what he has to say about it. What semiconductor vendors need to understand about hyperscalers is that energy is our cost. Power is our cost for running our data centers. And while we are all in different phases of deployment and have maybe have different applications or different customers or different areas of focus, power is the core value of data center operations. And because of that, it's interesting to see how the industry and semiconductor vendors come in and they will look at their solution and quite often say, oh, well, you know, the power for this 30s is, you know, only 50% more than it is for that 30s. Or, you know, the power here is only, you know, you'll use a read timer and that's only, you know, a few extra hundred milliwatts. And on the small scale, that doesn't seem like much. But when you operate on a scale where you're deploying millions of these potentially, 
or hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands even, that number starts to add up and that number starts to directly impact how many servers you can deploy. So the more power inefficient you are being, the more read timers or extra power being burned for no added value, the more you put that into your system, the less power you can put to the applications that your customers want to run. And I think that is an area where the industry will have to look at it more seriously. That's why you're seeing efforts by a lot of the hyperscalers to focus on things like moving optics inside, closer to the switch silicon to you know reduce that power. I think overall that's gonna be a trend of our industry is how do we become more power efficient? The point of quoting Brad Booth here isn't that hyperscale companies like Microsoft want to push the semiconductor industry as hard and as fast as it can go. Of course they do. The point is the stakes. A tiny change in a chip here can lead to an immense saving in a data center there. Let me tell you a quick story. Three years ago, Google and Facebook got together to formulate a standard for server racks. This is a subject so boring, it brings tears to the eyes of other engineers. But it was of vital interest to Google, Facebook, and anybody else with a data center. The standard would make racks more energy efficient by 30%. 30%. Spread that across thousands of racks? Google and Facebook said they were saving millions of dollars a year in energy costs with the new racks. What seem like picayune details to other companies are incredibly important to hyperscale companies. Real money is on the line. The second some better technology is available at the right price, in it goes. Data centers improve at the speed of improvement. The semiconductor industry does not. Chip companies are on schedules. That's the inherent property of Moore's Law. Progress on a schedule and each new step is a big one. Data centers will take any incremental improvement as soon as they can get it. The way data centers consume new technology literally does not synchronize with the way chip vendors generate new technology. And the hyperscalers have stopped waiting around. They're pushing the technology faster. And if they can't push it fast enough, well, then they'll just design their own chips. For years, Apple has been designing its own chips what it calls systems in a package. Google designed its own artificial intelligence chip. Facebook is doing likewise. EE Times just published a series of articles on how the semiconductor industry is changing in response to hyperscaler influence. The story that EE Times editor Rick Merritt contributed to the special project is about the repercussions of the hyperscalers getting into the chip business. Junko Yoshida talks to him about it. You're the one, actually, in the very beginning, when we are setting up this special report, you're the one who made a very astute comment saying that over the last, you know, few decades, every time when a new market segment pops up, like um, workstation or personal computer or game console or smartphone, chip companies were always put in a position to learn quickly how best to design and manufacture chips that fit the new customer's demands. So my question to you, that what's different this time around about hyperscalers? Yeah, this time around, instead of a broad market like consumer electronics, 
um, where there's many market segments and you have to figure out which ones you want to go after and then create a standard product to hit as many of them as possible. This time you have seven gigantic customers. And to some extent, they all want the same thing. And to some extent, each one wants something a little bit different. Kind of weird. Yeah. And you said gigantic, but certainly the biggest challenge for chip companies are these hyperscalers are flush with money, the money that a lot of chip companies don't have. Do you agree? Yes, and a lot of money that the individual customer for a semiconductor company doesn't usually have. I mean, Amazon alone is like a $250 billion a year company. There's not too many semiconductor customers that have that much cash. Right. And also, you know, I think in the past, um, a lot of system companies, whether it's automotive companies or the uh, PC companies or CE companies, uh, you know, in the early days, they may have their own ASIC team, but system vendors typically never had their own uh, design team because they didn't see that's their business. So how things are different this time around? Well, we got to blame Apple for this one. Blame Steve Jobs. He created this model that said, I'm going to be vertically integrated and I'm going to make the chip and the software and wrap it in metal and sell it to somebody with a service on top of it. And everybody said, wow, that's the model because they're one of the world's biggest, most successful companies. So the hyperscalers, because they're so big and because they do control all their own software internally, it's their workloads and their software. They said, let's start our own semiconductor team and at least we'll specify exactly what we want because sometimes nobody's making it. Exactly. Do you see that these giants are emerging as a real competitors to chip companies then? You know, I talked to a lot of people about this and pretty much the consensus is these guys have big problems to solve enough big problems to solve that they don't want to have to make chips if they don't have to. But sometimes there's big holes. Like nobody really knows their workloads and what AI accelerators they need. So maybe they'll have to design one like Google did. Uh, the guy who heads the semiconductor group at Facebook used to run the data center group at AMD. And he said when he got there, nobody had a video encoder suitable for the data center. So his team defined one, and they took it out and shopped it around, and now Broadcom and VeriSilicon are going to make it. That works for them. Right. But also, the, the way I see it is that those uh, so-called internet platform giants, um, they are in a lot of business, businesses, aren't they? I mean, they're not just making data centers, but they're, they're talking about, you know, their ambitions are really range uh, to, you know, things like, autonomous vehicles, IoT devices, healthcare devices. I mean, it's the, the, the ambitions is so big and encompass such a huge market, is it not? That's true. But they're also all a little different. Facebook tries to keep it simple by saying they have four big applications, Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, I forget number four. Amazon, you know, has its bookstore, but they also sell everybody cloud computing services with AWS. So in some ways they have similar big applications. Some are more fragmented than others. 
All right. So uh, give me a few examples of specific technologies that those hyperscalers want chip companies to develop or step up, you know, up the ante. Give me some examples here. Well, the biggest one is AI accelerators. Right. They each see their ability to do deep learning to personalize services as their value add. And that's how Amazon's going to compete with Google, who's going to compete with Facebook. So they're each trying to run faster than the other and doing better deep learning. So they need accelerators really desperately. But each one has a different workload, a different software that they understand really well. And they just want an accelerator that runs that fast, not Amazon's. AI is vitally important for the hyperscalers. And if there's a glamorous part of the semiconductor industry, it's the processor segment. When it comes to AI, the glamour is all in co-processing AI accelerators. Less emphasized, but equally important, AI systems rely heavily on memory devices. Gary Hilson covers semiconductor memory technology for EE Times. His contribution to our special project was an article chronicling the extent to which Hyperscalers are pushing memory technology so much harder and faster than ever before. So much so that they're engaging in parts of the IC manufacturing process that chip customers have almost never been involved in before. The hyperscalers are just so aggressive relative to other companies that they're pushing the momentum of things that will probably ha would happen anyway over time, but they're not content uh, for that to play out. So they have a vision for what the things they want to do, and they're, they're sharing that vision uh, with the, uh, the semiconductor industry, and, and in particular, the capabilities or, and requirements that they need from memory. So memory is interesting. So we've been talking about AI inference engines and AI accelerators, but tell us a little bit about some of the requirements they have uh, for new types of memory or new variations of existing memories? Well, I think for the hyperscale companies, they're not necessarily interested in being the guinea pigs for new emerging memories. And when we talk about emerging memories, those are ones that have been around for a while, the MRAMs, the RAMs, and the, the PCM, you know, and then that comes in the form of, you know, Intel Optane. They'll, they'll definitely look at those, um, but ultimately they want to get, they're trying to move data back and forth as quickly as possible for some of these applications to reduce the latency. And just as importantly is to reduce the power, uh, because at the scale that they're doing these things, it's a, a huge scale. So, uh, and in general, we talk about how much power data centers, you know, eat up and, and so in general, they're looking to keep the power down. So there's a performance requirement that they want to meet, but it's also a power consumption because that's a big part of their cost is operating, mm -hmm. you know, these devices with these memories. So if an emerging memory can be made and, and hit those, you know, key requirements, the performance you know, the scaling and the, the low power consumption, I think they'd go for it. But at the same time, if something, say a solution that combines DRAM and flash is $5 cheaper per device, 
they're going to go with that with, work, with, with, with what works because that extra $5 on the scale they are doing things is going to add up uh, yeah. in terms of cost. So I think they yeah, need yeah. a really strong value proposition uh, on one of these emerging memories to, 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 to say, I'm gonna, we're going to pay this premium. We'd have to do something really unique. Otherwise, they're going to look at DRAM and Flash and, and, and similarly the, the GDDR memory and the high bandwidth memory, although that's one of the more expensive ones. So I don't think, I think they would, might use it in select areas. It's worth the premium, but they're not necessarily, just because they have all this money doesn't mean they're going to be throwing it around per se. Well, and but yet they're they've got the money. They're willing to spend it for what they want, and it's kind of interesting. What we're hearing now is that uh, when they decide what they want, if they don't see it on the open market, um, they're increasingly willing to design it themselves. Uh, with the example of the Tensor that you mentioned before, and now we're actually seeing them hanging out at Semicon West with the semiconductor production equipment manufacturers and actually making suggestions about the process technology itself uh, required to, to get to the performance advances uh, that they're hoping to see. Isn't that's unusual, right? To get that involved, it's it's definitely a change uh, from how how you know previous big influencers have have worked with the memory business. I mean, the mm-hmm. one of the the big players that used to be able to, you know and still does to a large degree is Apple, saying, "Hey, we need this." Uh, but they were more about, can you add a pin to a certain kind of memory? Um, but otherwise, it wasn't about massive innovation. And, of course, uh, the, the memory makers would respond to that because of the market size. I think the hyperscalers are definitely interested in working directly with you know, fabrication companies and coming up with a process if they can you know, pull together the materials and the memory more quickly that meet all their requirements. So they're definitely collaborating more. It's I think it's early mm-hmm. stages, but certainly the the, the fabric, you know, the the, the manufacturing companies uh, that I've spoken to are certainly looking at that. They're they're getting approached and they're they're exploring those options to come up with these really specific solutions that these hyperscalers uh, want to hit those performance targets and to hit those power consumption goals. So as Gary has just observed, hyperscalers are even reaching down into process technology. EE Times editor Dylan McGrath was at Semicon West, the annual conference for semiconductor production equipment manufacturers. Most companies that buy computer chips typically find fab equipment to be a little too far downstream to get interested in. But with the hyperscalers, that's changed. We asked Dylan about that. So Dylan, you were at Semicon West earlier this month. Uh, What did you see there? One of the most uh, clear trends was just the presence of people from Facebook, Google, um, engineers from some of these big uh, web companies that are actually there at Semicon West now in increasing numbers over the past few years and really kind of getting as involved as they can in the in driving the process technology. So to put that in perspective, uh, there have been enormous companies in the past, uh, enormous organizations, 
big customers of semiconductors. It, it might be GM or Ford or, or a space organization like NASA or, or a company like Cray Research. These are all companies that have had leading edge applications and interest in uh, having some very specific things delivered in the semiconductors they've wanted. Have they ever gotten this uh, involved in the process before, not only uh, make, you know, designing their chips, but getting involved in the process technology? So I think the short answer is no, they have not. Um, and I'll qualify that a little bit. I, I, you know, I think the space agencies have always had some role. They always have some type of presence, but uh, there are a few things that are different now. I mean, for one, the international technology roadmap for semiconductors is no longer in force, I think all the other companies you mentioned were were buying the chips that were available based on the roadmap, and for the most part, they didn't have the need to really. They didn't want anything special. They wanted the most advanced chips they could get, or in some cases, not even the most advanced. But they were happy to ride the ride the roadmap and uh, and buy what was available. You know, today the roadmap is no longer being updated. And there are some divergence uh, points where different some of these companies want different things. Um, and so they're in there trying to peddle their influence and get the equipment companies to cater to what they want to do ultimately. And they're not just listening, uh, going to conferences, listening in, finding out what's available, offering their opinions, telling people what it is they're, they're, they'd like to see. They're actually getting equipment vendors to make specific machines for the types of things they want. Yeah, it does appear that that is just starting to happen. And what ha what uh, at Semicon West this year, uh, Applied Materials made an announcement of a, uh, several new Endura PVD platforms that are that seem to be geared directly towards this trend. And that, that is that these are for new emerging types of memories. And I think uh, one of the things is, you know, the, they cover many different types of memories, and I think part of the reason for that is these companies are are looking at different ways and different types of memory schemes to advance and and, and increase the pace of their AI accelerators. Right, so they have some very specific applications. They're AI accelerators, and they're willing to push that technology so hard. Uh, they're willing to underwrite the development of new uh, of of new equipment. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any specific knowledge of the of the underwriting uh, mm. portion of it, but I think the promise is there. Obviously, the prom applied develop these tools with the promise of purchase orders, and some of them already have been sold. So they, we know that they have the money, and they are highly incentivized to uh, create the best possible AI silicon that they can. It means a lot of revenue for them. And they're not afraid to spend. And I think that applied and all the other equipment vendors ultimately will follow the money. So that's where we are. That's where the industry is today. The hyperscalers have some very specific needs they feel won't be met unless they push the industry in ways it's never been pushed before. As a practical matter, what does that mean for the semiconductor industry moving forward? Here's Rick Merritt. Well, I guess the big message for our semiconductor readers is, you know, embrace this. These guys have a lot of money and a lot of demands, but embrace it smartly. Don't try to do a custom everything for everyone. 
continue to do your good marketing thing, work with these seven whales and figure out the few products that the most of them will buy. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself crazy. And here's Dylan McGrath's take on pretty much the same question. I think on the whole, it's a positive. I think that just about everyone would say this is all very positive. Um, the more companies that you have coming in, getting involved, spending money, I guess is the main one. You know, certainly the equipment vendors are very happy to see it. There's uh, this whole new trend, whole new wave that's driving the production of silicon, which is in turn driving the sale of tools. Uh, and I think that everybody's pretty happy with it. The more, the merrier, I think. Again, especially from the equipment guy's perspective. I think, you know, there may be some there may be some chip vendors who aren't thrilled with it. I'm sure that they would just assume that these companies bought the products that they were making. But if these companies felt that they could do that and still differentiate themselves from their competition, I'm sure that that's what they would do because they don't necessarily want to be in the semiconductor business but they want to have the differentiation when it comes to AI that will put them above their competitors. Not too long ago, Junko caught up with Wally Rines, the CEO emeritus of Mentor Graphics, and asked him about the hyperscalers and how their decision to become more vertical would affect the EDA industry. Here's what he had to say. The first thing is it's a big financial opportunity for EDA because these companies have lots of resources, they tend to be uh, very well funded, and so they grow the EDA market uh, for existing tools substantially. So basically there's some pretty profound changes within the semiconductor industry that are still in progress. The good thing is that many of these changes will be opportunities for innovation, for growth, for more business, but that's not the end of our story. Something Wally Rines said about the hyperscalers caught our attention. They have, in many cases, different priorities. Uh, I don't know if you remember the uh, presentation on the Google contact lens that was at DAC five right, years ago. Yes, yes. Now, why didn't Google just have somebody else design the chip that went into the contact lens? Yeah. I have to conclude it's because Google doesn't uh, want to get in the chip business. They want to own the information and they don't want to make that chip available to other people. They want to own the system. They, the contact lens, the relationship with the doctor, the, uh, the program on the cell phone to control the insulin pump. And so a lot of the IoT applications I see, whoever is developing the silicon plans to make their money from the information. Did you catch that? When a company like Google has the means to build an entire system, it can own the system. In this particular example, the contact lenses, the relationships with the doctors, the program on the cell phone to control your insulin pump. To engineers and technologists, to guys like Brad Booth, those guys have a very specific job, trying to make a data center go faster. And their focus is on just getting that job done. But how they accomplish it matters. And part of the method of getting the job done is becoming vertical at a scale few companies have ever been vertical before. That's business. And the business creates the big picture. It is the big picture. And the big picture is that the hyperscalers, which already control so much in our daily lives, 
are poised to control even more. Does anyone else find that alarming? That these hyperscale companies are getting so enormous, it is conceivable they could gain control of our healthcare? Sure, there isn't a healthcare system in the world that couldn't be improved, but is letting Google take care of all of it really the best thing for anyone other than Google? Or maybe there will be competition among Google and its hyperscale rivals to control your entire health system. I'm not sure that's any better at all. I suspect it might be worse. Facebook just got fined $5 billion for being cavalier with our personal information. $5 billion. And to Facebook, that amount was inconsequential. Even more worrisome, they get to keep playing with our personal information. Google. Facebook, the hyperscalers, they're on the brink of gaining more power. There's no telling where this could go, but we can't consider the consequences of what these companies are doing if we aren't aware of what these companies are doing. Well, now we're aware. What do we think about the consequences? That's your weekly briefing for the week ending July 26th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with the links to the articles we refer to. Be sure to join us next week for your weekly briefing on EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.